listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you guys would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to be in the first seven verses. Acts chapter 6. Now, I just want to give you kind of an understanding of where we're at uh, today. We, we came out of Easter and spoke about the Ascension last week, which perfectly fits into where we're at today. The, the, the New Testament church was established, the Spirit fell, and now there is a need in the early church for deacons, which is our third building block, if you will. If you're, if you're new with us, we have been focusing on... Uh, the mission or the theme to prepare to build. And these are the three building blocks, biblical values, training, and deacons. And at least from a sermon standpoint, we're going to hit on deacons for the next three weeks. But the goal is not to just have these building blocks be a sermon topic, if you will, but something that we are actively doing within the church body in regards of upholding our values, teaching the values, training one another in the word and righteousness, dealing with even just how do we address some of these cultural issues, some things that can't necessarily be tackled right here from the pulpit. And of course, we'll talk about some of our need to train up and raise up deacons within the Redeemer Church body. So that's where we're at. And then once we're done... Um, with biblical deacons, then we're going to get back into the Gospel of John where we had left off. Matt Smithhurst, author of the book, he's author, pastor of the book Deacons, one of the books that we're going to provide as a resource for you guys. He wrote this in one of the opening uh, chapters. It says, The Nazis, it turns out, did not like deacons. After the Netherlands fell to Germany in 1940, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church rose up to care for the politically oppressed, supplying food and providing secret refuge. Realizing what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Responding in a general synod on July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved... Whoever touches the diaconate with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church, whoever lays hands on the deacons lays hands on worship. The Germans back down. Smethurst continues on later in the book, citing a historian, Charles DeWeese, who says that deacons visited martyrs who were in prison, clothed and buried the dead, looked after the excommunicated with the hope of restoring them, provided the needs of widows and orphans, and visited the sick and those who were otherwise in distress. In the plague that struck Alexandria about 259 AD, deacons were described by an eyewitness as those who visited the sick fearlessly, ministered ministered to them continually, and died with them most joyfully. Being a pastor, and maybe many of you growing up in church or just being in this church culture, we all have an idea of what pastors are, what churches are, and even what deacons are. And there is a lot of fallout stories, a lot of bad stories about 
deacons. And unfortunately, I kind of get a front row seat in our city, knowing many churches and pastors and so forth, of seeing how deacon-run churches often run their church into the ground, or some have run their church in the ground, overstepping their authority, going against pastors, and just ruining the church. But I'll say, on the other hand, there have been deacons in our city that are not so bad. Now, I'll use a, a couple of examples from within our own body. I know there are uh, some who have actually served as deacons. They're not here. They're on vacation. But we have a couple in our church body, Dave Richards and Steve Brunell, who both served as deacons at Temple Baptist, the building of which we're sitting in now. And they served. And whenever I got that phone call from Dave about us coming here, I thought, here we go again. Here's another deacon trying to, you know, maybe save their, their church building and so forth. And, and really, they're, they're just kind of wanting someone to come save the day, but they're not really concerned about the biblical call of making disciples. And they're just wanting someone else to come in. And they sound nice in the beginning, but eventually... As I told Dave, the devil's in the details. As soon as they find out, as soon as they find out we're reformed and we have wine in our communion, they're not going to want us here for sure. Turns out I was 100% wrong. I actually, my whole, my whole paradigm and thought of the deacons was flipped as far as the stereotypes in the city. You guys have been humble. Um, you guys were and still are devout to scripture and the desire for the word to move forward in this community, in this city. And you're willing to do whatever it took and still whatever it takes to see that the Lord is honored in this community and disciples are being made. So definitely want to thank you both for your service in that way and, and helping just kind of shape my mind around constantly the negative stereotypes of deacons that we can honestly have. Redeemer does not have officially biblical deacons. We have ministry leaders, we have serve team leaders um, who function in some sort of pseudo kind of way like a deacon. And we have just kind of casually over the last 10 years just kind of said, well, that's kind of what deacons are. They're servants. Really, that's not what deacons are. Coming now to scripture, we're seeing, yeah, we are actually falling short in that and maybe, perhaps maybe when we planted the church, we were just kind of operating out of reaction to the, the negative things that were happening in the churches in our city. But then there's this very convicting quote that Smethurst, Matt Smethurst gives. And this is the last one in the introduction. I'll quote him. He says, A congregation without biblically functioning deacons is impoverished. But a congregation with them is incalculably rich. I realize, man, we are missing out. We are missing out and not having these biblically defined deacons. And so that is our goal and our objective in the next three Sundays, including this Sunday, is to really unpack what biblical deacons are and what it is that they do. And so today is going to be really kind of the blueprint of where we begin to see in the New Testament this position of deacons. The more explicit text will come out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses uh, 8 through 13, and we'll get into that 
the next two Sundays. But today in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, we begin to see really the formation of what would later be understood, even through church history, as really the first deacons in the church. So with that said, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, this is your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is clear and it instructs, but also it is alive and active. So I pray, Father, that you would convict our hearts, that you would lead us to just a deep, deep worship and affection for you, for the work of Christ, thankfulness for the indwelling Holy Spirit who guides our prayers but also leads us into how we lead the church and function as a church. I pray this morning that your word would be made clear. Be with me as I preach. Be with those as they hear. And may we go out of this place obedient to your calling. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Be seated. So, biblical deacons. Here we see today an unexpected, I would call an unexpected blueprint for deacons. We're going to see, I'm going to break this down into five different sections, and I think we'll have those verses up on the screen for you. But we'll start with verse 1, a worthy distraction. Verse 2, the explicit call of God. Then verses 3 and 4, that unexpected blueprint. Verses 5 and 6, a reinforced bond. And then verse 7, the flourishing gospel. I'll walk through those as we, as we go through the text, okay? So just focusing now on verse 1. A worthy distraction. A worthy distraction. And again, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. If we were to just kind of jump back and take a quick review of what happened in the book of Acts up to this point, it'd be something like this. Last week, as we worked through Acts chapter 1, we saw that Jesus had been on, after he resurrected, he hung around for about 40 days, physically hanging around, perfectly glorified, if you will, resurrected body, 
eating, drinking, fellowshipping with the apostles, with the disciples. And then at the end of those 40 days, the apostles were saying, hey, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom of God? Jesus says, don't worry about those seasons. Here's what you need to worry about. Go be witnesses. Be my witnesses, my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That idea of being a witness, being proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the proclaimed word. And so they did that. That's exactly what they did. And the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the people, and this is how they after they were converted, what they had done. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer, the apostles' teachings, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. And I think often we look at that imagery right there in Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're like, man, I want that every day. Well, it was a unique time. The Spirit fell. Jews were converted from all over the globe who had come in for the festivals, had come in, and they were converted. And you skip up a couple chapters into Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. You see shortly after the church was being persecuted, you see them coming together again. Everything just looks smiling. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many who were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. Laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you see the church is just flourishing, doing really well. And you have up to this point a couple oppositions. First is direct persecution. Why are you preaching Jesus in this city? You are forbidden to preach Jesus in this city anymore. So they arrest the apostles. They put them in jail. The angels release them and they're back out on the public square in Jerusalem preaching the gospel again, counting counting what they do as worthy for the kingdom of God. So persecution comes. Persecution doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to stop the mission. And then you get to chapter 5, and we see the entrance of a moral failure. Ananias and Sapphira, people in the church, they were all lining up to give their tithes and offerings, if you will. And they morally failed. They lied to the apostles about what they were giving. And ultimately, they were lying to God. And in that moment, they dropped dead. So you had persecution hitting the church, moral failure hitting the church instantly, thinking, okay, I wonder if this is what's going to stop 
the gospel train, if you will. But it doesn't. It keeps moving. It keeps going. And some kind of describe and think that what we're getting into in Acts chapter 6 is maybe a ploy of the devil. In that, okay, persecution and moral failure isn't going to work, but maybe distraction. Maybe if we distract the apostles and the church enough, they will forego the explicit call in Acts 1.8 to go and bear witness and make disciples. And so you see that distraction essentially forming in the natural formation of the church. You have this church who's coming together, this new economy, this new citizenship, this new kingdom, if you will, that is being formed. You have here, it's estimated about 8,000 new believers. When it says that they had all come together, the number of the disciples were increasing, we're looking at close to 8,000 disciples from all over the known world who had come in and were converted. The Spirit fell upon them and changed their hearts. And so now the church automatically is being formed. There are no elders. There are no deacons. There is no structure for kids ministry. There's no youth ministry. There's none of that yet. There's just the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the apostles. And the church responds and comes together having everything in common, giving to one another. They're operating like a city within a city. A kingdom within a kingdom. A nation within a nation. And so they are submitting to their king, their risen king, the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who has all power and authority. They now live, as Peter says, elect exiles in a lost and dying world. There's a new defined people. And when you have a newly defined people who come from different walks of life, different cultures, different ethnicities, different ways of doing things, and you try to bring them together and now live life together, there's going to be conflict. I don't think I have to go into much detail about that. Most people in here are married or have been in a relationship. When you bring two sinners together under the same household, it's chaos, right? And that's what happens. You have 8,000 people who just came to faith in Jesus all have their sinful propensities and temptations now coming together to be one in Christ. And that, that becomes the springboard for which the distraction will be birthed. And so the new problem, the Greek-speaking Jews, that is the Hellenists, complaining against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Culturally, widows in this time were unable to take care of themselves. Their husbands were generally the ones, were the ones who were the breadwinners, who made the money, who took care of the family in that way. And the reason here in Jerusalem, it's not surprising that widow ministry was a big thing is because historically, what I've learned is that men in the final years of their life would pilgrimage to Jerusalem knowing that they would ultimately die there and that their wife, who would be a soon-to-be widow, would be taken care of in the ministry in Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem was full of widows and this ministry or this service was already taking place ahead of time and now it was a part of the church family. So you have this, this mix 
of people. You have widows needing to be served. The tension in this story, I think, would be likened to something like small town America, if you will. Where an outsider moves into small town, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about, an outsider, whatever that is, they move into that town and they could live there for decades, have children, grandchildren, and still be considered an outsider because they were never born and raised in that small town. That's the sort of tension we're having between the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So the Hebrew-speaking Jews is like, we're, the, you know, we're not the half-breeds here. We are, we are full-on. And the Greek-speaking ones, you're kind of halfway in, halfway out. And so there was always that cultural tension. And so when the widows were being neglected, it's my assumption, the Scripture doesn't say this, my assumption that those cultural tensions were playing into the people's frustrations. Why aren't my widows being served? Or why aren't the, the Hellenist widows, why are they being neglected? But most scholars speculate that there is no, this is no intentional act of intentionally neglecting one set of widows over the other, but it's most likely linked to miscommunication and misunderstanding. Nothing intentional, nothing insidious, nothing like Ananias and Sapphira who intentionally lied, trying to deceive the church and the apostles, and then they were struck dead. And so this is just a simple miscommunication going to the nth degree, a good time to capitalize on distraction for the church so that the gospel doesn't continue forward in Jerusalem. But I call this a worthy distraction, a worthy distraction, because while it is a distraction for the church, it is also at the same time the very heart of God. Never at any point are the widows the problem or serving widows the problem. That is not the issue at all. This last week I was reminded we read Psalm 68 and staff and, and prayed together. Psalm 68 verses 5 and 6 says that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home, putting the poor in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The church isn't sitting here rolling her eyes in frustration and serving widows, but trying to learn how to do so as a unified people. Worthy distractions. Worthy distractions. Can you think of, perhaps, church, any distractions that have arisen or are on the rise in our church body as a result of us trying to live now as a people unified in Christ? I'm not asking the question to dig up dirt. I'm like, ooh, let's find. Let's find out what's going on. But are there distractions among our body? Or you think that are distractions? And let's be honest. It, the reality is it is hard to shake off old habits that have been formed. Cultures that we grew up in, prejudices that we may have had, poor cultural influences over our lives that we have really kind of bowed down to for so long. It's hard to just shake those instantly when you come into a church family. 
Everywhere we go, everything we do, everything we touch, everything we say always has the tendency to be tempted with the things of the flesh or things that have shaped us in our life. And so what becomes problematic for the church is when those things go from a place of just conversation and dialogue, agreeing to disagreeing, learning and growing to a place of unhealthy distraction for the entire church body where maybe secondary or tertiary matters become paramount. Like if we don't address it or talk about it, everything is over with. Is there something like that that you're aware of in the church body that has kind of bubbled up to the surface, becoming more of a distraction than maybe it ought? Not meaning we don't deal with it, that we don't engage it, that we don't be edified by it, but that it is becoming an unhealthy distraction. And look, there's a reality that we need more um, elders or apostles to step in and help provide a way. But the reality is that the solution to these things is a church-wide solution, not just an elder or apostle solution. So who among us already kind of has that itch and that desire that desire to draw the church to unity and keep her from becoming really inwardly distracted? Who among us loves the church so much that they're willing to be a target for such thing? Sounds exciting, right? It's like, man, I would love to carry a target on my back. That's just my favorite thing to do, right? (laughs) But who among us kind of has that? If, If I could just begin to kind of stir the soul a little bit, Who has that in them? Is there anything that you're seeing in our church that is a distraction? And maybe you're aware of this? So if you would, if you do have something, I want you to tangibly respond. Not now. (laughs) Tangibly respond. Send me an email. Send me an email letting me know, hey, I've seen these things. I'm concerned. It seems like these things are becoming a distraction from the mission of making disciples. Just wanted to make you aware of that. That invitation is there. You're welcome to respond in that way. And so we see a worthy distraction. Next, we see the explicit call of God in verse 2. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The twelve did not go off on their own in their own little huddle, their own little apostolic huddle, and talk about how to create solutions for the problem, what did they do? They called in the full number of people. Like the first mega church, the first church family meeting, 8,000 people, they call in the full number. And they do this, and I want to say, I want to argue for these reasons. One, that the call of the apostles is not apart from the call of the church. We're not dealing with two separate classes of clergy members, if you will. Different roles, but not different in the sake of call. The apostles are called to lead, to care, to protect, to equip, to feed the sheep. But they are equally called to witness and to make disciples as well, just as everyone else in the church. The job description in that sense is exactly the same. The role may be distinct, but the call is the same. 
So the call of the apostles is not apart from the call of the church. The call of the church is not apart from the call of the apostles. It goes both ways. The church needs to consider God's word. The apostles aren't the ones who just huddle up and just figure it out on their own. The the disciples, the 8,000, have a responsibility as well because they have the spirit inside of them and because they too are commissioned by God to make disciples to consider God's word, to be convicted, to be aware of the calling, uh, their calling, but also the calling of the apostles and their role to bear witness, to preach the word and to prayer within the church. So there has to be unity. There has to be unity around what God has called his people to do. And I think the, another reason that they call in the full number is because it is the church that holds the keys to the kingdom. It's the church. Matthew sixteen nineteen talks about this. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The big idea being that when the church is the witness of the gospel and it, and it goes out, it is the church through which the kingdom of God is lived out. You, if you were to continue on in Matthew's gospel, it is through the church that things like church discipline take place, not through just the leaders. It is the church that has the Holy Spirit. It is the church that has the word of God. It is the church that has this responsibility to living out these ways. And so the apostles are well aware that this is not their church. It is our church. And I would say also they call in the full number because it is the church who has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not just the apostles, but the whole church. I mean, the whole city witnessed it happening on all the Jews in Acts chapter 2, how the Spirit fell upon them. And so they understand that the Spirit is God and that as the Spirit indwells the church, that the Spirit will work. And so the apostles don't have to worry about, well, what if they don't get it right? And and they don't have to be anxious or worrisome or try to micromanage everything. They can understand that the Spirit-filled church has a part to play and a role to fill in this situation. And so they say, it is not right for us to serve God tables on the outset it can almost sound egotistical it's like whoa excuse you i'm sorry you're way above this task but that's not at all what the apostles are saying the apostles were never afraid to get in the trenches never afraid to serve never afraid to do those things but what happened was as the church was growing and the spirit fell they had to maintain course with their explicit call from god And to serve tables is to deacon tables. That word serve is another form of deacon in the verb form, to serve tables. And it is an idiom, meaning to handle finances. Yes, you can get the idea of waiting tables and those sorts of things, but there's more administrative things that need to be done in order for the widows to receive their daily distribution. So a literal translation would say something like this. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to handle finances. And this preaching the word of God is that gospel message that Jesus is the son of God, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, that his spirit has been poured out on the earth. And so it is not right that they should give that up 
for the sake of working spreadsheets. Redeemer, I want you to be reminded of what you hold because of Christ. You are a holder of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You are not the holder. You don't have absolute supreme power in the kingdom of heaven. No, he has been given, he has given those to you. Jesus is the ultimate one with authority. He has shared with us his authority, his power, his grace, his mercy. Everything that resides in the heavens is constantly overflowing and pouring out onto his church. We, this is why he says we always have everything that we need. He's always going to supply our needs. Even if we're in prison in the Philippines, we were praying for earlier, or if we're here in southwest Missouri with no worry about ever losing our life. God always is supplying our needs. The world does not have those keys. They don't have it. They don't have that authority. They don't have that power. They don't have that instant, constant access to grace and mercy in those ways. It is the church. And that's the glorious weight that we have been given as the church of God. And that means no matter who you are, whether you're a pastor like myself, or a serve team leader, or just a faithful member, you and I all have a stewarding responsibility to the church body and what, is she, what it is that she is supposed to be doing. All members are active members in the, in the church, not just paid staff, not just elders. I think most of you know this. We have a lot of you serving, a lot of you giving. We're super thankful. No one is exempt from responsibility in the kingdom. What is it, church? What is the explicit call of God for you as a member of his church? And I use the word explicit here because it's this clear, without question, call. The Bible gives very clear these callings on people's lives. We can use calling very flippantly sometimes. You know, I was called to this job. I was called to do this. I was called to buy that house or called to do this. Like, okay, kind of gets convoluted a little bit. But there are clear callings in the Scripture. And I want you to wrestle with that. What are the clear callings of Scripture for you as a disciple of Jesus? What has God called you to do without question? What has He called you to do? And then I want you to consider what role do you have to play within the body of Christ? It might be an aspiration to eldership. It might be that to being a deacon. It may not be to any sort of official authority position in the church, but it may be, okay, how do I function as the right hand? Or how do I function as the left hand? Or how do I function as the foot or whatever it is, what part of the body I am, how do I function? How do I serve in any other capacity? What is it that the Lord has just uh, put inside your soul, this burning desire, knowing how you are, knowing your skills, knowing your gifts, knowing how it is that the Lord has wired you? How does that fit into the call that you have for the sake of the church? And so here's what I want you to consider. 
And I'm not sure what it is I want you to consider because I lost all my words right there. <laughs> Here's where I want you to start, okay? To make it simple, to break it down. First thing, what is the clear calling that the Lord gives to all believers? Secondly, what is that role, okay? And then third, once you become aware of your calling, I want you to become content in that calling. Amen. And the reason I say that is because there is a pressure in our Christian circles and society through books, podcasts, conferences, you, you name it, that these certain positions within the church are the things that you ought to aspire to. Ministry only looks this sort of way. And ministry is you doing these sorts of things. And if you're not hitting these you know, expectations, then you're not actually doing it. And there's always this con- constant guilt or shame that comes upon us right? Constantly. Well, I I just don't measure up. I'm just not smart enough or just whatever it is. I don't want you to be there. I want you to be content in where the Lord has you. I don't care if that means being an elder. I don't care if that means being a stay-at-home mom and faithfully raising your children. I want you to be content in where the Lord has put you. And then I want you to go out and give thanks to the church body Give thanks to individuals. Honor them for how the Lord has equipped them, how the Lord has called them, the roles that God has given them within the the context of the church and build them up, encourage them in those ways. That's what I want to see happening. And so that was the explicit call of God. Next is the unexpected blueprint in verses 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So immediately the apostles knew that something needed to be done, and so they gave what I would say is just Spirit-filled instruction and direction. And so they built out a paradigm or a structure of which they needed to vet men, to leading in the handling of finances, leading in this ministry of daily distribution to the widows. And what you'll notice is they called the church, right? And they're not just quickly putting leaders in place. They're giving some direction here that would allow time and focus and consideration and prayer to come in place before leaders are put in those positions. And this is really where we see the blueprint. So first is, In this blueprint, it is the church that is going to first or initially pick the seven. I mean, could you imagine that process? There's 8,000 people (laughs) around. How do you narrow it down to seven people? These people must have been very standout in a very, very large crowd. And as you pick these people, here are the qualifications. And so here's where we begin to see this model of deacons in the New Testament. We don't see the word deacons here. You don't see the word elders here. There's almost this one-to-one correlation. Apostles to elders, right? These servants to deacons. And so this isn't a, hey, this is what deacons are, but this is a blueprint. This is really the beginning of where we see deacons unfolding in Scripture. And what is the first qualification? That they would be of good repute. I ended up taking this from Matt Smether's book, Again, I thought the way he fleshed these out were so good. And so I just wanted to 
plagiarize him, if you will, of good repute. In other words, they are to be respectable, known for both character and conduct. The Apostle Paul will, as he says, double-click on this virtue in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, where he demands that deacons be dignified or worthy of respect. The second thing is they are to be full of the Spirit. Smethurst says again, as Christians, they will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, converted, right? As mature Christians, they must be known for submitting to the Spirit's leadership in their lives. These are not believers who fancy themselves as having spiritually arrived. On the contrary, they've reckoned with their weaknesses and are daily resolving to lean on the omnipotent Spirit of God. And third, full of wisdom. So of good repute, full of wisdom, or full of spirit, and full of wisdom. These are the qualifications. Very simple, very straightforward. And again, he says, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled increasingly with wisdom. He is, after all, the wisdom or the spirit of wisdom who generously promises this gift to believers who ask. We were with our kids this week doing family worship, and we were reading out of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, and we were talking about lady wisdom versus lady folly, which is that personified understanding of wisdom and folly in the book of Proverbs. And we were able to see that walking in wisdom is really that walking in freedom. It's not walking on eggshells. It's not, it's not constantly looking over your shoulder over, all the time, which is what the Lady of Folly does for those who follow her. But when you follow Lady Wisdom, there is freedom. There's an endless supply of bread, an endless supply of water you see in Proverbs 8. So this picture of these seven men or whoever the church is going to decide are men who are in step with wisdom, in step with Christ, in step with His Spirit, who are constantly feeding on Him the bread of life, the living waters, who want Him and nothing else. And once these seven are chosen, then the apostles will appoint and they will commission them out to the work. And so while the church then functions in this capacity to do these things, the apostles are saying we we must not give up prayer and the ministry of the word. Even while this is all taking place, they cannot in this moment give up the clear call that they were given by the Lord directly in person to go and bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so when it says here that they devoted themselves, that means that they were to continue to do something with intense effort, intense effort with the possible implication of despite difficulty. So intense effort, no matter how difficult it gets, you continue to devote, you continue to pray, you continue to minister the word. And so let me hang on ministry of the word for a second. That word ministry is the second time we see the word deacon in the Greek. The first one was with, we shouldn't deacon tables. And this one is deaconing the word. The first one was a verb. The second one is a noun. So the apostles aren't saying we aren't servants. We're above being servants. No, they are servants. They are disciples, just like the, the 8,000 around them. But their role is unique and distinct. And how they serve is in, by ministry of 
the word and prayer. That means their life is not only a verb of service, but also a noun. Everything that they do, all of their life is to be of service in the word. We have to understand that the apostles aren't just focusing outwardly evangelistically, they're also focusing inwardly. Acts chapter 2 says the church came together devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. So not only are they discipling and ministering to the church the word, but they're also going out to the lost and ministering the word. But even more than that, it's more than just proclamation. It is, as Paul would later say in the New Testament, an example set for the flock. Their entire life is under a microscope. Everybody's watching them. Everybody's waiting to see, not only, not only hear the words that they're going to say, but see how they actually live that word out in their life. This is the very unique call of the apostles and later elders. But consider here the honorable blueprint of deacons. Listen to this. Here's what's required of them. Godly, spirit-filled wisdom. These men, their service will facilitate the ministry of word and prayer. And these men will ultimately lead the church towards a reinforced bond and unity in Christ and the flourishing of the church. Because these seven will come into place the church is going to continue to be able to do what she does. This is an honorable position. These deacons are vital to the church. I want you to start thinking about this. I want you to start thinking, Redeemer, about men and women, and we'll talk about whether or not women can be deacons in the next couple weeks, but I'm just going to dangle the carrot out there and let you squirm for a little bit. But I want you to think about men and women in our church body who meet such qualifications. And I want you to start praying for them. Pray for them by name. I want you to ask the Lord to raise them up as deacons within the church. And then as a follow-up, if you would, if you're willing to share, let me know who it is that you're praying for. We're needing this because we need the full number participation as we move towards biblical deacons. And I want you to start thinking and praying about those folks now. And so we see this unexpected blueprint, and that leads to a reinforced bond in verses 5 through 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenus, <laughs> I don't know why I tried reading these names again. Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The church was pleased to do this, it says. Pleased. And how come? Because first, the church understood the clear calling of God to go and make disciples, to go bear witness, but also the clear role, the distinct role that the apostles play in the formation of the church. And so they were willing to move forward in this way, and so they understood that this was necessary. But the second thing is, and this is where I think the reinforcement of the bond comes in, 
is that the church chose seven Greek-speaking Jews to be the deacons. We know this because of their Greek names. And you think, well, maybe there might be some tension there already because Ananias and Sapphira were also Greek. And things didn't turn out so well for them. So maybe there could have been this frustration like we're getting picked on in the church. But instead, they pick seven Greek-speaking leaders. This is an incredible act of humility and love and trust within the church. Completely. The church hungered for unity so bad that they were willing to raise up these men. And so this is a beautiful moment in the church of humility, of service, reinforcing their unity and their bond in Christ. Stronger than it was before. Persecution came. Moral failure came. This distraction and almost division came. But now, through this act of humility and service that, I w- that was fueled by the Holy Spirit, there's a bond now that I would say is tighter than ever before, saying, brothers, sisters, we trust you. We know this wasn't done on purpose, and we're going to set you up in a position of leadership just to show you that we are for you and not against you. And so this is a great pleasure within the church And so what are the evidences of these qualifications? What do we know about these men who were chosen, who were raised up into this position? Two of them we can talk about for a little bit, Stephen and Philip, right? They have these qualifications, so we go, okay, so did they meet the qualifications? What did they do? If you were to jump into chapter 7, you would see instantly how Stephen, one of the deacons, already went to work. These men were full of faith, as the apostles had said. Stephen was described as being full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. You see that in verse 8 of chapter 6. Stephen's faith, he wasn't just, you know, tool belt Tim or John the spreadsheet guy. He didn't just change light bulbs. He wasn't that kind of deacon but he was a man who was on the front lines of this apostolic movement, if you will, of the gospel going out, serving the people, serving and still making disciples, yet not as the distinct role as apostle. He was doing it as a faithful disciple of Jesus. And Stephen's faith was concrete in God's word. He knew God's word. He believed in his unmeasured grace. He had faith that the Spirit would perform those signs and wonders for the sake of serving the lowly, for the sake of the lost coming to saving faith in Christ Jesus. He had no doubt in that. These men were full of the Spirit. That is the literal filling of the Spirit, trusting not in the flesh or any other than Christ. Stephen and Philip were both described as men who spoke as men filled with the Spirit. You see that in chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 39. And these men were also full of wisdom. Wisdom being defined as that divine wisdom of God in their life, their speech, their conduct was in line with Christ and the Word. Stephen preached an incredible sermon in Acts chapter 7, clearly showing from the Old Testament narrative, starting with Abraham, then to Moses, 
showing how it then comes to fulfillment in Christ. And then he didn't hold any punches. He called those before him to repentance, knowing that it would cost him his life. Philip does a similar type of thing as far as preaching the Old Testament. When you get into Luke in the latter parts of his gospel, or excuse me, not in Luke, but Philip goes out into the wilderness and there's an Ethiopian eunuch who is wanting to know how to understand this passage from Isaiah. And it is Philip who gives the translation, who gives the understanding and is carried away by the Spirit. Both men understood the word. They had faith. They understood the promises. They understood the prophets, the law. They understood it all, pointing to Christ. And they were faithful in that. And at the same time, they were serving tables. The Spirit worked through the selection of the church. And through agreement at the level of the apostles, the seven were then appointed. They were commissioned by prayer, sent out to do the work. They helped keep unity by reinforcing it by the Word and Spirit. They were able to manage church resources for the sake of the ongoing mission towards widows. They were able to absorb criticisms, I'm assuming, questions and opinions from 8,000 plus people might still have question about why they're doing the things that they're doing, but in all, the church is unified. But still, you're dealing with the flesh. And they maintained a deep love for the Lord all the while. They were men of honor, deep honor. And perhaps we need to take some time this morning and really consider how we've maybe downplayed the biblical role of deacons. Maybe we just gave in to the negative stereotypes and experiences instead of pressing into what God has beautifully designed for His glory and our good. Maybe some of you in here have a deep burning in your soul, an unstoppable call to become a deacon. You love the church. You love the mission, the ministry of word and prayer so much you really can't contain yourself. You're ready to give all that you have, even unto death, for the sake of fulfilling the call and role of becoming a deacon. If that's you, you need to make that known. You need to let the community know so that the community can pray for you and allow the community to speak into that calling you may have to help shape you and grow you. And once the church raised up these deacons, you see in verse 7 how the gospel continued to flourish. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's the cause and the effect of raising up biblical deacons. Had deacons not been raised up in this situation, the church may have just sunk into chaos and turmoil, and who knows if it would have continued on into Jerusalem. It wouldn't have had such a glorious ending in verse 7. But because of faithfulness to God's word and installing these deacons, here's what happened. The word increased, disciples multiplied, and the mission to Jerusalem was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. You saw right there in verse 7, it's talking about many more in Jerusalem coming to faith, the priests coming to faith. And by the time you get through chapter 7, after Stephen gives his amazing sermon and then is stoned to death, you see at that point, Saul is ravaging the church 
And then the disciples are then dispersed out to Samaria. Because the deacons stepped in and fulfilled their God-given role and call, the church was able to complete that first step in the witness, in the mission of taking the gospel first to Jerusalem. I wish I could tell you for Redeemer what sort of wonderful things would happen or will happen once we install deacons, but I can't. I can't picture that. And honestly, that's not our business. But what is our business is faithfulness to God's word. We may hold the keys, but he is ultimately the key master. He is the one who makes the decisions of what will happen to his church. And whatever the outcome will be is for him to decide and ultimately for us to enjoy. Whether that be a citywide revival, hundreds, thousands of people come to saving faith, or that means it costs us our very lives. Either way, the kingdom flourishes. It flourishes when we obey God's word. It's not because the deacons are something special, like elders are something special, or any of us are something special. It's because when God's word is obeyed, it grows. It flourishes. The kingdom moves. Doesn't matter if it's persecution. Doesn't matter if it's moral failure. Doesn't matter if it's distraction within the body. Obedience to the word results in an ongoing movement of the kingdom of God. And so how do I know? The last words of Acts, chapter 28. Regarding the man who approved Stephen's execution, Saul, the apostle Paul, speaks of him. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. At this point, the gospel had made it to the then-known ends of the earth. And here we are today, 2022 Southwest Missouri, with the gospel, with the word of God right before us. God still doing the same things he did 2,000 years ago. So may those final verses become the story of Redeemer as we continue forward in faithful obedience, especially in the raising up of biblical deacons. Let us consider the distractions of our day as worthy opportunities to reconsider our calling in life, the role we play in the church, and how we ought to press into the blueprint of God's design for deacons so that we can continue to see our church be reinforced in the bond of unity and flourish in the ongoing mission of God to bear witness to the King and His kingdom.